Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our show, The Islamic Dilemma. Today, we are going to cover a very interesting but rather sensitive topic. Uh, the topic has to do with women, and in particular, the status of women under the teaching of Islam, the Quran, and possibly even venturing into the status of women under the Hadith, and how that all relates to Sharia law. The interesting part about this whole topic is that the fact Islam claims that it elevated the status of woman since it started it back in the year 610 AD. In other words, Islam is stating that before the start of Islam as a religion, the status of women were actually inferior to where they are today. We will take a closer look at a number of a very important passages from the Quran and some statistics also from the Hadith to see for ourselves if indeed the status of women has been improved, elevated, or even their freedom, if you wish, has uh, been taken to a brand new level under Sharia law and the teaching of Islam. The primary source we're going to focus on today will be the Quran, along with some of the other sources, such as the Hadith. As always, joining me today will be my special guest, Bill Warner. Bill, Delighted welcome to, be. to the show. Delighted to be here. Bill, um, you know, before we, we start taking a closer look at some of the passages that we are going to analyze together here, uh, share with me a little bit about your view of women, for instance, uh, in uh, the western part of the universe under, uh, you know, for instance, in the U.S. or mm -hmm. in Europe. Um, uh, you know, what happened, for instance, to the freedom of women in there? We hear all the time that, you know, women in the West really don't have any kind of freedom. Uh, and that the fact that uh, actually uh, they are restrained from doing certain things. And, and we hear all these kind of claims that when you look at facts, actually the facts are a little bit contradicting to whatever we might hear. And the sources of this, of course, that I'm referring to mainly come from Islamic mm -hmm. sources. Well, all of this is very foreign to me when I hear it. Uh, I was raised by my grandmother and my mother. My grandmother was fiercely independent. She looked straight across at any man. Uh, and so I am used to actually strong women. Uh, I certainly raised my daughters to be strong. Uh, so when I started reading in Islam what their attitudes were in the Quran, I can remember actually one time reading the Quran and actually throwing it onto the floor, saying to my wife who was across the room, you can't believe this. And so that's such a contrast with what I started seeing in Islam with what I saw in my own life. When we look at the Quran, for instance, um, and we begin to take a closer look at how women are looked upon, whether as wives, as daughters, as just an individual, a human being, uh, the very first thing you will notice that they are treated differently. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things, of course, uh, I've always grown up learning, and you probably heard the same thing, that, look, Islam covers the woman, they protect her beauty, therefore they even prevent her from being harassed by men in general. What is your thoughts on the covering part of the body, basically? Does that really prove to us that women's status have been improved, 
or does that give us a different impression? It's very strange to me, and of course, I think to any Westerner, the first time you have ever seen an Islamic woman in the full garb, you're like, oh my goodness, it is so strange. And then you look into it and you hear these arguments, well, uh, we honor them, and all I can say is I don't want to be honored by wearing such clothing. But the other thing that makes you wonder is, is if Islam is such a wonderful cultural religious doctrine, why is it that women need to almost put on armor to be in the presence of men? What is there with a, a Muslim man that he can't just take a look at a woman and treat her as a person? Why does she need to be in her own little, what looks to me like to be a prison? That's a very interesting thought because uh, truly if we're talking about the Muslim woman being covered up, mm -hmm. let's say when she travels, when she leaves her Islamic country, I can see the fact that, okay, Islam is trying to protect one of its own mm -hmm. against harassment from men who are supposedly idolaters, infidels, uh, non-Muslims, you name it. But the problem is, the problem exists in the heart of man, and specifically, Muslim men are the one who typically will harass women in Islamic countries, even if they are covered up. Mm -hmm. So the issue of covering a woman up doesn't mean anything sometimes if a person is persistent in at least pursuing someone or harassing someone or giving him a hard time. So I'm not so sure really where is the connection between the two. In fact, if we look at the story, uh, Bill, of when did this command even come about, uh, we noticed that this command took place actually in Medina, yes. which means Islam really didn't care that much about covering women and protecting them for at least 13 years. Well, the arguments that are given for veiling, why weren't they true in Mecca? Why is this? Because we are taught that in Medina, now that Muhammad has, of course, a lot of followers, he has more wives now. Uh, the story goes that some of his wives and the wives of the other believers who are his followers would go out at nighttime, go to the wilderness, uh, and, and basically the this purpose and the for, bathroom. you know, forgive me, going to the bathroom basically and uh, supposedly there were some men uh, uh, that are roaming the streets at night time and they are harassing them and uh, the idea came uh, by Omar that uh, maybe the prophet need to ask his wives and the wives of the believers to cover themselves up. Therefore, they can be distinguished from slave women. Apparently, the command to wear modest clothes and cover yourself up, including covering your hair and covering your body and your arms, has to do with distinction also between a slave and a free woman. Now, let me ask you this question. Does that give you the impression that Islam actually protected women in general when no. it's still distinguishing between a free and a slave? Obviously not. If we're going to protect women, why wouldn't you protect a female slave? Instead, this almost brings the slave woman out as a target if it's necessary to be clothed to be around Muslim men, which again is strange. Well, certainly, of course, I can add uh, to, to what you just commented about the slave woman, uh, uh, myself uh, as a former Muslim, and, and you know, you don't even have to be uh, a Muslim or a former Muslim to know that the Quran teaches that men were allowed to enslave women, and mm -hmm. they called them uh, what your right hand possess, exactly. basically. It's almost like a, a good, a product that you have, along with cattle and land and, and treasury and everything else. And just because she's a slave uh, woman that belongs to the man, unfortunately, Islam also allows the, the man 
to even sleep with her without exactly. any marriage because she belongs to him as his own property. And unfortunately, now that many people know that Islam also allowed men during war, uh, uh, war times and battles to take women as part of the spoils. Yes. In doing so, actually, if they would capture a woman that is married and her husband, let's say, still alive and he is part of the enemy side, they can still sleep with her and because technically speaking, her marriage has been nullified exactly. under this doctrine. Any comments on that? The, the thing I always think of when I think of this is sex slave. I mean, this is a complete subjugation of the woman. Uh, and, the, and for all this thing about respecting women, why is there no respect of this married woman's status? Why does that suddenly disappear just because a military battle was lost, basically? Again, ladies and gentlemen, we're trying to uh, prove our point here that when it comes to Islam, indeed our analyses will show that Islam has no regards whatsoever, as Bill just mentioned, to women at all, whether they are slave women, non-Muslim women, or even as we will continue now to show that even Muslim women have lost actually their status in terms of being respected as a human being. I remember I watched, uh, was watching a YouTube um, you know, video made by a Muslim young man, and it's like in a humorous way, and he's talking about the different types of so-called hijab or mm -hmm. the covering. And he was like in a humorous way and showing women what is the difference between the real hijab and uh, the hijab that they sometimes invent, which in his mind is not hijab at all. He used a very important statement. He says, women need to understand that by covering themselves and wearing the appropriate Islamic hijab, now the man has to look at her as a person, not <laughs> as an object. Now, this says a lot to me, Bill. What is your reaction uh, of a well, statement my, like this? My reaction, of course, is just the opposite. When she's in this garb, which is like a canvas coffin, she becomes an object. I mean, they're not even distinguishable. They are object-like. I saw, once again, uh, a photograph that was on the Internet in which it was in Saudi. A Muslim man is taking picture of, we guess it's a family, and they're in the full black with a niqab, so we only see their eyes. But you look at these six women he's taking a picture of, and you kind of wonder, what's the purpose? It's six black objects. How, do you, how would you even know which one was your daughter or wife or anything? Interesting point. Uh, now, uh, I want to emphasize to our viewers that we're not here propagating the idea that women should not dress up in a modest way. Absolutely we're not. not also stating that Muslim women should even remove the hijab or the burqa or the niqab or whatever you want to call it. Uh, but we are trying to address the issue that does the Muslim woman have the freedom to choose for herself what kind of a dress or a modest dress, for instance, that she can wear. I mean, Bill, what's wrong, for instance, with dressing up with uh, long pants and, and long uh, sleeved uh, shirts and, and just uh, uh, being just modest that way? What is the problem with something like this? Well, I don't know. I don't have a problem with this, for sure. But it's almost like this covering has to be, well, for one, purely Islamic. And I, th I see it as, in some way, as a cultural assertion, even, is that... Modesty in a woman is only defined by Islam. There is no other modesty other than Islam. Right. And, you know, the, the troubling thing to me is, is uh, we always hear 
that Islam actually uh, protected women by asking them to cover themselves up, therefore eliminating the danger of rape. Unfortunately, rape crimes in Muslim countries are prevalent and are in the same probably uh, uh, arena as we see it in other countries that are non-Islamic. So w what does the hijab uh, do in this case? I mean, it didn't do anything. It did not protect a woman. In fact, a woman in the U.S. or in Europe who are not covered up with hijab, uh, they can walk safely. Uh, they're not going to be worried about a man jumping over them mm -hmm. just because they're not dressed up in a modest way. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, th this, this di dilemma is, is something that uh, is always confusing to me. The other thing that's confusing to me is, and I come back to the political side of it. For instance, when we have a woman who is a government official and she goes to some Muslim country, are we really concerned that Hillary Clinton, if she doesn't have a scarf on, is going to be gang raped on the tarmac? No, that's silly. There is no danger to, and I choose Hillary just because I remember seeing a picture of her with a scarf on. Uh, I, it's, it, in that case, it's more like a political statement of Islam's demand that everyone submit to their rules. And that's indeed uh, how Islam operates and specifically how Sharia law works. Uh, once again, ladies and gentlemen, we are addressing a very sensitive topic has to do with Muslim women and their status under Sharia law and the Quran and Islam in general, and not just Muslim women. The status of women in general, what we're trying to show to you today that if Islam indeed has improved the status of women, then we need to have an explanation by at least sincere Muslims to the many passages that we will be sharing. For now, Bill, we're going to take a quick break. Pressure slowly building. An explosion that shocked the world. A coastline forever changed. The oil impossible to remove. Nothing could destroy it until the source was found, until that source was sealed. To uncover the source of Islamic terror, read the Quran Dilemma, Islam Unplugged. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you so much for being with us today in our show, The Islamic Dilemma. Uh, we are discussing today the status of women uh, in Islam and also specifically how it is viewed uh, under the teaching of the Quran and Sharia law and we may also take a quick look uh, I believe on some statistics from the mm -hmm. hadith in terms of how the hadith also views women of course we're talking about Muslim women in uh, specifically but in general also we want to talk about women uh, uh, as uh, a whole race uh, in general. Uh, one of the things that I, I've always heard that um, a Muslim woman is protected uh, uh, when she is also getting married, that uh, her status as a wife also uh, will improve, that she will be a, a co-equal partner with, with her husband. Uh, yet when you come across a verse or a passage, for instance, uh, that is found in chapter 4, and by the way, chapter 4 is considered to be the primary chapter that you can study about the status of women and the treatment of women uh, and uh, uh, marriage, divorce, and all of the things that are associated with that. And we wrote about that extensively in our book, The Quran Dilemma. And I believe, Bill, you also addressed the status of women in at least one of your books. 
Oh, yes, uh, because women play such an important part in the Quran and in the Hadith that they really are a special topic that you need to stop and take a look at. I even wrote a small book on the doctrine of women. I mean, it, you and I are not even going to touch on the extensive amount of material that is given to women. And uh, the fact that Bill mentioned the word doctrine, that indicates to us that there is a number of passages that deal with women, uh, women and we're not talking about one only. We're talking about a, uh, multiple passages that has to do with a lot of things that relates to their status. Uh, I want to uh, direct uh, our viewers to the screen. I want to show them a verse in chapter 4, uh, verse 34. In this particular passage, it tells us that men are superior over women. And the reason for that is the fact that men work, they're working class, and they provide for their family, and this by itself allows them the status of superiority, meaning they are a degree higher. Mm -hmm. Now, this is kind of interesting, Bill, because when this verse was being at least revealed by Muhammad, it is possible that that was the cultural status of his time or of his days or of his at least location. But is it true that women, just because they do not work, that means they're not co-equal or, uh, or partners with their husband? Uh, what about uh, the women that work? Does that, what does that make them now? Well, a question that comes to my mind is, Muhammad's first wife was a wealthy businesswoman. That's does that true. mean is, that he was superior to her even though she had money? Uh, uh, that's left unclear. But what is interesting, uh, Bill, that this, this was issued, uh, at least by Muhammad, revealed after the death of his first wife. So we wonder true. how she would have felt about yeah. this. How would Khadija have felt about this? <laughs> Wait a minute. I gave you a business, I gave you wealth, I gave you children, and you're superior to me? So this very argument that is used in this verse is a silly argument to begin with. Just because you, as a man, can work and your wife... Maybe by choice she doesn't want to mm -hmm. work. Does that make her a less of a person than you are? Let's take a look at another uh, passage. Some of the rights given to a husband, which is in the same passage that we just read, mm -hmm. is the fact that if he fears, notice the language, not that he is convinced or he have evidence right. or witnesses that his wife, let's say, committed uh, uh, something shameful. If he feels... Or, or have some fear uh, that uh, something might be going on, or he is, let's say, a person who has jealousy, a mm -hmm. problem with that, you know, he, he's uh, uh, having doubts about his wife all the time. Just by doing so, this suspicion alone mm -hmm. allows him to go through a process of intimidating his wife, basically. Right. He can ignore her. Mm -hmm. He can refuse to, let's say, according to the verse, to even sleep with his wife. And if she rebels against him, he's given the right to beat his wife. That's right. Now, I ask Muslim women in general, please tell me, how does this command of you being beaten by your husband have elevated your status and improved your condition under Islam? Bill, I'm puzzled. Maybe you can help me understand this. Well, let's put it this way. If all of a sudden you have the right to beat me, I don't feel equal to you. I just don't. <laughs> I mean, putting myself in the woman's place, um, I remember, I remember I told you when I first started reading the Quran, I became aware of the status of women. And when I read this verse, it infuriated me. It infuriated me. 
Uh, and, and, you know, it inf should infuriate, infuriate any, anybody. I mean, it should make you feel that something is terribly wrong with this command. If a husband or a male is given the authority to beat up on a woman for even fearing something mm -hmm. or just having bad feelings of suspicion, I mean, to me, this isn't manly at all. In fact, I want to point out something that is very important for our audience. One of the main reasons when we mentioned to you in our first episode that this show is being put together is to help you, if you do not speak the Arabic language, realize the kind of teachings like this one that are found in the Quran. Bill, do you know that this verse is the most troubled uh, verse for many of the translators of the Quran. In fact, some of them go to the extreme of adding the word beating your wife lightly, lightly, which the Arabic language, by the way, does not have. And let's assume it says beat lightly. Why beat her at all? Well, and the, the, another part here that's problematic is, but if the next phrase is, if they submit to you, this is all about the man being a total control. But we are told that women are equal to men. If they submit to you, how does... I think the verse speaks for itself. I think it does. <laughs> I think we need to move on to another aspect of the status of women in marriage. For instance, I'm sure you know this, Bill, that uh, a man who is a Muslim man, I should say, is allowed to marry up to four wives. Correct. And the verse that uh, we are looking at right now uh, actually shows that this command is a divine command. In chapter 4, verse 3, it says this, And if you fear that you cannot act equitably towards orphans, then marry such women as seem good to you, two and three and four. First of all, I want to point out something. You and I were discussing this. Mm -hmm. There is so, some sort of a disconnect between orphans and marrying women. If we are to take that this command within its context means that only if a male is taking care of orphan females and they are the only one that he can marry, then Muslim men who are marrying more than one wife, they're in trouble. Mm -hmm. They're against the, what the divine teaching is. And if this command means, no, you can marry any woman, whether she's orphan or not, then this passage is really problematic because it, there is something disconnecting here. Oh, I remember when I read this verse... I read this over and over again, and it would never make sense to me. But if you fear that you cannot act equitably towards orphans, then marry women. It's like, wait a minute. How does taking care of orphans transition to polygamy? It, I, I remember reading this over and over again, and finally it was just, I don't understand this. What, I don't understand. Absolutely. And the other thing, Bill, um, I mean, this is part of, by the way, Sharia law, ladies and gentlemen. We're talking about the oh, yes. implication of things like this under Sharia law. If Sharia law would be implemented today anywhere, in any city, in any country, in any state, men who are Muslim are allowed to marry more than one wife. This is polygamy. There are laws against polygamy, by the way. And uh, this isn't the original design that God have intended for men because God could have created Adam and four wives at the same time. In Never fact, about that. <laughs> I would like to even point out something that is, might be uh, uh, you know, uh, troublesome to some Muslim men or even clerks. Where does it say in this particular verse that the limit is for? The verse is using just a, an exaggeration here that mm -hmm. you can marry two or three or four but actually, in the Arabic, it's giving you, like, examples. It could be two, it could be three, it could be four. In fact, some men in Africa end up marrying nine and 11 and 13. And when you ask him, it's 
it says 40. They say there is no limit. Beside, we're following the footstep of the prophet. Exactly. Who actually was unique in marrying more than four. And I also heard of one Muslim ruler that interpreted this verse to be he got one plus two plus three plus four. That's the way he read the verse. Just added one, two, three, and four up to come up. These are the number of wives you can have. Well, he must be a mathematician then. <laughs> <laughs> we are going to move on to another uh, area where women, when they are married, also are impacted by. For instance, mm. the idea of divorce. Now, in, in general, under civic law, a woman can go to court and ask for divorce. Sometimes it's with cause, sometimes it's without cause. But let's use the idea of cause. Let's say the husband is an abusive person. Mm -hmm. I think the law should always look for the best interest for the woman as a human. Mm -hmm. If the husband is abusive, beating her, uh, causing uh, a lot of injuries to her, her life is at risk, I think the woman have the right to go and ask the court to divorce her. Yes. Do you know that under pure Islamic law that that's not allowed? Because only the husband has right. the power to divorce his wife. And he can divorce her once and marry her again, twice and marry her again. But only if he divorces her three times, that's the only time that he's not allowed to remarry her again. And by the way, some men even can, uh, you know, there are some fatwas that you can send an email to your wife and saying divorce three times and she's divorced. Right. Although I saw another fatwa which said that texting the divorce statement doesn't work. You've got to present it to her in person. So there is some disagreement here. But divorce is quite easy for the male. So back again to the equality between a woman and a man. In this case, a wife and her husband. I'm not seeing so far this kind of equality. In fact, I'm not seeing that the woman's status have improved at all. She's like a product that he can sell mm -hmm. whenever he chooses to let go of it. Yes, it's uh, because the woman can't say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and it's over. It has Absolutely no meaning. Absolutely not. In Absolutely fact, no if, uh, if any clerk would issue a fatwa like this and give the woman the right to divorce her husband, he will find himself in a whole lot of trouble. <laughs> now, what about the idea of remarriage, by the way? Now, um, here is the problem. In this particular verse that we're showing, chapter 2, verse 230, it says that a divorced woman... After she's been divorced three times, let's say... By the same man. Exactly. Let's say her husband felt bad and he wants to bring her back. Can he do that? Well, this verse says she can, but something very strange has to happen. Tell us, Bill. What is that? She has to marry another man. And they have to... It can't just be a fake marriage. Not it, on paper. Not on paper. It must be consummated. Then the new husband divorces her, and now then she can marry the original husband. This is bizarre. Ladies and gentlemen, what Bill have just described is what I call a legalized prostitution, basically. Yes. That's basically what it is, is you are giving away your wife to another man to marry her, sleep with her, and then divorce her so that you can get her back. Where is the improved status in this case? I don't see it. I don't see it. I don't see it either, Bill. Well, Bill, this topic is definitely a very interesting one. Unfortunately, we are running uh, completely out of time to cover the majority of things. We're and, going to have to do more on this. And I would like have, to see... We have not even touched the surface. Absolutely. I was, in fact, going to ask you if you don't mind uh, that we do another, at least, episode on the same topic because there is a lot, really, to cover, and we haven't scratched the surface, as no, we you mentioned. No, no, no. Um, one of the things that I would like to reemphasize again 
If Islam has improved the status of women, I ask the audience, and especially if you are a Muslim woman, please be honest with yourself, based on information that we just shared from you, which came straight from the Quran that you believe in as the Word of God, tell us, did this improve your status? The answer from my perspective, absolutely not. In fact, your status have been uh, completely been disrespected and lowered from where it was before. Uh, once again, ladies and gentlemen, we thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Please uh, uh, take a look at the website uh, that is on the screen and send us your email, questions, and comments. Until we see you next time, have a mega blessed day.